Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mariah Gates, and this is Minute 33, which begins with the drop ship screaming through the planet's atmosphere and ends with Pharaoh declaring their range to be 014. Well, thanks for coming back, Mariah, and also to Asia Romano. Thank you for coming back again today. Thanks for having me. All right, so we're screaming down towards the planet as the introduction said we kind of didn't talk about we didn't talk about the drop itself other than that that moment came pharaoh hit the button and the and the ship dropped um do we have a gravity problem with that i, I don't want to point out a negative right away but um isn't there kind of a problem with how this drop ship drops how does it exactly hurtle downward from space Am I am I naive about how space works, or is this just one of those uh, points that we're supposed to spend our dis- disbelief? I'm assuming there's like some sort of top level flame that comes out of the ship that propels it down that we just don't like see. A re- yeah, a, a retro <laughs> thruster sort of. Yeah, yeah like a threat. That's the word I was looking for. I'm assuming there's thrusters, and we just didn't right, see them. Right, I feel them. like, the, edit, like the, the, the way that the camera angles on the model is very deliberate to cut off the where the thrusters would yeah. be. So. Just, let's just pretend there's thrusters. Yeah, that's probably what you should do. I just, honestly, I watched it over and over again to see if there was any evidence of anything like that, and there's not. So I just thought I'd throw it out there. But yeah, that's what we should assume. Even if it's not even a thruster, if it's just a, I don't know, some other kind of kick from the from the ship that would settle set it down. Because once it gets nose nose down, then we see thrusters. You know, once it goes, it's pointing towards the planet. It's fine, but it's kind of weird because they they all have a kind of gravity pull on them as the ship is dropping before it hits the atmosphere, and it's it's interesting, I guess. But you know, it's it's still you know we're in the era of of space you know star wars still kind of and we're not really shouldn't probably be asking too many questions about stuff like that yeah the only sci-fi that really gets into the science of sci-fi is star trek you know like in not even original trek but like we're in deep the beginning of next generation where you have like all the stuff with geordie and it gets really technical and it's like the only sci-fi where anyone like created technologies and actually thought it through and that's part of why we now have a bunch of Star Trek technologies for real. Um, but, you know, most other sci-fi didn't really go there. You just sort of went with the fantasy side. Of course, Star Trek still had big fiery explosions in space. It, it did. It did. So it wasn't 100% above board. <laughs> but, you know, it's an, inter- it's an entertainment that I, I don't want. I don't know. I'm not sure if I want hard sci-fi in my entertainment yeah. too much. I don't want you to. I don't want to hold it to that kind of scrutiny. I think Cameron too was obviously seeing this more from the military standpoint than from the you know sci-fi standpoint mm-hmm. at this in this particular sequence. You know, he was all about like they had so much set dressing on top that like when they shook the the ship like parts fell out you know so (laughs) i think that he was just thinking about how can i make this look as grungy and and realistically military as possible not you know how do thrusters work and what are physics yeah what are physics right what are physics (laughs) who cares um i I like (laughs) that um pharaoh in, in they're going into the clouds and she's like there's some chop and it's like as if she's talking about a boat you know, going through choppy right. waters. I'm like, is this really chop or, but she's really nonchalant about it. Like deal with it guys. We got some chop and everyone just has to deal with it because it's a bit of an echo from alien 
Because what happens here is that Spunkmeyer there, her co-pilot, tells her, I think it's whole eye, there's some whole ionization is how he describes whole it to her. ionization, yeah. Yeah, and she goes, got it. Really cool. Just got it. And then she tells them, you know, yeah, prepare for some chop. It's re- very reminiscent of when they're landing on the planet in Alien and they're having technical difficulties and they tell Dallas and Dallas is just like, got it. And he hits a button and he's cool as can be. And we talked about that quite a bit in that minute of Alien because it showed us how competent and control and, and collected that Dallas was. So we're kind of getting another. We get these little echoes in Aliens where we see moments that are almost exactly like the moments in Alien. And this time, Pharaoh gets the little Dallas moment. And yeah, she's cool as can be. No problem at all. You know, this chop, this does not look pleasant at all. And she's just like, eh, here we go. Deal with it. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. She she gets so many good little moments during this job sequence. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, too, how impressive, how I love to see effects like this model effect that we get with the drop ship, where, I mean, it's pretty clear the way the shot is framed. We've got the tail section of it just out of frame, right? We have this fog effect around it, a little shaky cam effect. And then the ship sort of turning back and forth. I can almost picture a hand on the tail <laughs> of the ship just turning it back and forth. But it, how much a good fog effect, what the sound design, what the shaky cam, what all that does to that moment, it makes it still seem so authentic, even though it could very well just be a toy in a child's hand being turned back and forth. And how nice it is to see effects like that again. I miss them. I, I really do. I hate to be the old stodgy guy. The non-CG, the anti-CG guy, but I love to see a model just moving a little bit in a frame. I don't, I don't <laughs> particularly care for CGI either. It never, like the thing, the reason I like models is you can feel the weight. They're photographed with weight, and CGI right. never is still. I can't see the weight in it. Maybe it's because my eyes are terrible, um, and they are not that great, but. I can't see the weight in things that are pure CGI. Like Jurassic Park is great because they mix CGI with models and you got like this insane depth to everything. And that was a great sort of bridge, but then we lost the depth and everything. And we still, as far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen anything that's brought that depth back. And it, so I, I'm going to be an old person yelling at a cloud also because I want depth in my special effects. Yeah, the Jurassic Park, we've actually talked about it on our show before, how it's still the standard. It's still it's the, so the gold good. standard of CG effects. But even talking about weight, though, like I think I said this very thing on the show. Um, the prop, the only problem with that T-Rex, that T-Rex is probably the perfect CGI effect oh, and still has so never good. been surpassed. Except when you look at its feet. The, the footfall just doesn't quite work. That's yeah. the only flaw in it. And it's because you just can't get that. Like, how can you? There's nothing there. So um, it's the I think it's the fundamental flaw with CGI. And we've been taken to task. Alien Minute as a show has been taken to task for bashing CGI too much. But I'm I, I'm sorry. I mean, I'd much rather see the effects we're going to see. Even in the next couple of minutes, we're going to get some go motion effects. I would much rather see as phony as that looks. And I'll admit, stop motion, go motion. Obviously, it looks phony. I like that phony. Much better than I like the phony of computer-generated graphics. It's Because, again, it's still real and has weight, like you said. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, the things that makes the sequence feel so effective is how tactile it is from start to finish, you know, and inside and out. Like, you really feel like this is a real ship and it's a real 
you know, they are real set pieces and they are real, they, they, they're set dressing everywhere. And, and like they had people on the outside, like actual crew members, like rattling the, the structure when they were all inside it, you know, and, and there are things like that, that if you, if you were cutting in between, you know, the inside of the ship where everything is very tactile and, and real and, and heavy to the outside where everything is very fluffy and CGI, like it would, it would basically break the illusion. You know, you wouldn't have that, that synthesis. And I think that that's really important. Like, I think that you can have effective CGI as long as you don't, you know, as long as you are, are sort of tempering it with, um, I guess with, with in a context where it feels like it, it, it's part of the world and it's part of the, the visual universe you're building, but that wouldn't have worked here for a sequence like this at all. Does that make sense? I yep. agree. Agree a hundred percent. So we get a moment here with Ripley. We teased it a little bit earlier. Mariah, you brought it up, uh, how she closes her eyes on this drop until a moment. And this is the moment, right? She opens her eyes and, and, kind of checks in on Gorman and sees him not particularly um, happy <laughs> in the middle of this jump. Yeah. And she decides to point it out, right? Now, how do we read her reasoning for this? I mean, we know it's a bit of exposition, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt that there's character moments happening here, too. Like, why would Ripley suddenly decide to have this conversation with Gorman? To me, Ripley is extremely good at honing in on weaknesses. Just very, very good from experience at this point you know and i think when she's trying to get her bearings during this whole scene like one of the things that she's doing is also coming back to herself you know as she reorients herself she's she's discovering a little bit more of her inner ripley you know um her her six senses are coming out you know yeah i think i think it's a moment where she sees his weakness and a way to get on the right side of these other people yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think I think that this is a moment where she's she's more collected than the the CEO of the Marines. She's more she's got it more together, and maybe she sees this as a moment. Yeah, like you said, that, that she can point out something that they certainly would be pointing out too, and they even join in on it a little bit. You know, Vasquez just like guffawing, just like oh. Really, thirty-eight mission. That's it, and all simulated, you know. And, and it is a moment where I think, yeah, she was found a time that she could bond with the rest of the guys, and yeah, I, I guess that's you know a, a good organic way to give us this exposition about Gorman, where really it's just it's it's really more of a moment just to let us know how incompetent he is, how inexperienced he is, and then but to have it come through the the POV of our protagonist, and then also have it contribute to her general arc as far as her uh, relationship with the rest of the people uh, makes it for a pretty good i mean it's a pretty good moment so far we've had these big expositional moments in this movie and all of them have had more layers to them than just simple exposition well, and his, so his response, i got his response to her question it also reveals so much because first right. she asks him how many drops he's done he says 38 super confidently and then waits a second and then admits that they're all they they were all simulated, and you're like, hmm. <laughs> you're Except not actually this... confident at all. <laughs> well, he he might have you know uh, he might have been ready to bullshit everybody. He might have said ah thirty eight, and then he realized wait a minute there somebody's gonna call me out on this. I'm gonna have to. And then there's the one combat mission he's been on though. Well, and then well so then Vasquez 
Vasquez is the one that calls him out on it and goes, well, how many were combat? And he says two. But that's a good question. Like, is the two combat missions, was it a real combat mission or was it simulated combat mission? I don't know. No, he's saying there was 38 simulated. Drops. Two two real, two combat. When she says how many combat, she says two, including this one. So there's been one real one that he's been on at some point. But, you know, they talked earlier when they did the debriefing with Ripley earlier in the uh, docking bay. They talk about bug hunts. We talked about this a bit a couple of weeks ago and how there are probably these this nothing missions, these simple missions. A bug hunt in, in the parlance of Vietnam era military meant something that wasn't really dangerous, something that you could go on and it was probably not going to turn out bad for you. So you could guess that whatever mission he's been on was probably a bit of a I bug hunt. I also thought hunt. that's a great callback to Starship Troopers, which I read Cameron had right, them right. read. Um, going in, so they're all supposed to feel very... Is it Heinlein that wrote that? Yes. Yeah, so they're all supposed yes. to feel like Heinlein, these Heinlein yeah. sort of characters. Um, and I didn't know that the first few times I've seen this film, so that was an interesting layer to add to it. Um, and now I realize like this whole movie is a big like riff on, on Heinlein, actually. Um, it's interesting. But yeah, so like, what was that other one? Is that how he became a, a lieutenant? Like, did a bunch of... Did he see people die? Who knows? I, my guess is, you know, they when, when they're talking about the bug hunt and you talk about Heinlein and, and Starship Troopers, you know, it, it could have been this clearing, you know, they're going to set down a shake and bake colony somewhere else. But there's these this indigenous alien life there that they just had to go wipe out. And it wasn't really a dangerous mission, but something, you know, in Starship Troopers, they have a couple of those situations where they go to a planet and it's not really a lethal menace of any kind on the planet that you're just able to easily wipe them out and that's why it's a problem when the aliens start fighting yeah. back and becoming more of a menace so i'm guessing that his status as a lieutenant probably has a lot to do with uh being in the academy or something he's one of those officers for college officers you know and and then he's been on one real simple mission and it was you know i mean you can tell he he hasn't done anything he hasn't seen anything really so if we're going to try to read, you know, extra textual information into this, it's probably not much of a mission that he went on before. Well, I think, too, if we're going to assume that Burke is in command here, really, Burke wouldn't have put Gorman in, you know, nominal command of this operation if Gorman wasn't, you know, a chip off the Burke block in terms right. of how he approaches power structures and how he, you know, is opportunistic. I feel like Burke is probably comfortable with him because they're they're similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. If it, actually, if you do any research on, you know, this really doesn't have much bearing on the movie that we're watching and talking about. But if you do some research on some of the backstory behind Gorman, Burke, the ship, the Sulaco that they take to come to the planet, it's all, none of it's the best of the best. Like Gorman is definitely not somebody you would handpick for a really important mission. The ship has had multiple problems and was considered to be bad luck. These Marines in particular, some of them are ex-cons that have only been given the option to go to either spend life in prison or go to the Marines. You know, it's it's that kind of a situation. And Gorman handpicked to this situation probably so he could have the control or assume that he could have control over the mission and that these people would play ball with the company. So that's why I, you know, that's it's easy to read that in there even without knowing all that backstory. You could probably assume just from Burke and Gorman's relationship from the very first scene that they had, that, that there's a bit of that power play going on and that Gorman's really just ready to be a pawn and willing to go along with the program. 
So my last note on this minute says loud whooshing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> loud whooshing. Loud whooshing into the next minute. Well, okay. Well, let's whoosh on into the next minute then. Um, Asia, do you want to let everybody know again where they can find you online? Sure. I'm at Vox as Asia Romano, and you can find me on Twitter at Asia Romano. I'm right. And you can find me at Old Films Flickr all over the internet. You can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Twitter at AlienMinutePod, or on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. All right, that's going to do it for Minute 33. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute 34.